Section 5 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Two Mr. Chestertons. I cannot help wishing at times that Mr. Chesterton could be divided in two. One half of him I should like to challenge to mortal combat as an enemy of the human race. The other half I would carry shoulder-high through the streets. For Mr. Chesterton is at once detestable and splendid. He is detestable as a doctrinaire, he is splendid as a sage and a poet who struggles with stars and can keep seven of them in the air at a time. For if he is a gamester it is among the lamps of heaven. We can see to read by his sport. He writes in flashes, and hidden and fantastic truths suddenly show their faces in the play of his sentences. Unfortunately, his two personalities have become so confused that his later books sometimes strike one as being not so much a game played with light as a game of hide-and-seek between light and darkness. In the darkness he mutters incantations to the monstrous tyrannies of old time. In the light he is on his knees to liberty. He vacillates between superstition and faith. He is a genius at once enslaved and triumphantly rebel. This fatal duality is seen again and again in his references to the tyrannies of the Middle Ages. Thus he writes, quote, It need not be repeated that the case despotism is democratic. As a rule its cruelty to the strong is kindness to the weak. End quote. I confess I do not know the rule to which Mr. Chesterton refers. The picture of the despot as a good creature who shields the poor from the rich is not to be found among the facts of history. The ordinary despot, in his attitude to the common people suffering from the oppressions of their lords, is best portrayed in the fable, if it be a fable, of Marie Antoinette and her flippancy about eating cake. I fancy, however, Mr. Chesterton's defense of despots is not the result of any real taste for them or acquaintance with their history. It is due simply to his passion for extremes. He likes a man, as the vulgar say, to be either one thing or the other. You must be either a pope or a revolutionist to please him. He loves the visible rhetoric of things, and the sober suits of comfortable citizens seem dull and neutral in comparison with the red of cardinals on the one hand and of caps of liberty on the other this i think explains mr chesterton's indifference to if not dislike of parliaments parliaments are monuments of compromise and are guilty of the sin of unpicturesqueness one would imagine that a historian of England who did not care for parliaments would be as hopelessly out of his element as a historian of Greece who did not care for the arts. And it is because Mr. Chesterton is indifferent to so much in the English genius and character that he has given us in his recent short History of England, instead of a History of England, a wild and wonderful pageant of argument." already he cries as he relates how parliament quote, certainly encouraged and almost certainly obliged end quote, king richard to break his pledge to the people after the watt taylor insurrection quote, already parliament is not merely a governing body but a governing class end quote. the history of england is to mr chesterton largely the history of the rise of the governing class 
he blames john richard green for leaving the people out of his history but mr chesterton himself has left out the people as effectually as any of the historians who went before him the obsession of the governing class has thrust the people into the background history resolves itself with him into a disgraceful epoch of a governing class which despoiled pope and king with the right hand and the people with the left it is a disgraceful epoch patched with splendid episodes but it culminates in an appalling cry of doubt whether after all it might not be better for england to perish utterly in the great war while fighting for liberty than to survive to behold the triumph of the governing class in a servile state of old age pensions and insurance acts this theory of history as being largely the story of the evolution of the governing class is an extremely interesting and even fruitful theory but it is purely fantastic unless we bear in mind that the governing class has been continually compelled to enlarge itself and that its tendency is reluctantly to go on doing so until in the end it will be coterminous with the governed class history is a tale of exploitation but it is also a tale of liberation and the overemphasis that mr chesterton lays on exploitation by parliaments as compared with exploitation by popes and kings can only be due to infidelity in regard to some of the central principles of freedom surely it is possible to condemn the insurance act if it must be condemned without apologizing either for the roman empire or for the roman ecclesiastical system mr chesterton however believes in giving way to one's prejudices he says that history should be written backwards and what does this mean but that it should be dyed in prejudice thus he cannot refer to the hanoverian succession without indulging in a sudden outburst of heated rhetoric such as one might expect rather in a leading article in wartime he writes quote, with george there entered england something that had scarcely been seen there before something hardly mentioned in medieval or renaissance writing except as one mentions a hottentot the barbarian from beyond the rhine end quote similarly his characterization of the revolution of sixteen eighty eight is largely a result of his dislike of the governing classes at the present hour quote, the revolution reduced us to a country wholly governed by gentlemen the popular universities and schools of the middle ages like their guilds and abbeys have been seized and turned into what they are factories of gentlemen when they are not merely factories of snobs End quote both of these statements contain a grain of truth but neither of them contains enough truth to be true one might describe them as sweetmeats of history of small nutritious value one might say the same of his comment on the alliance between chatham and frederick the great quote, the cannibal theory of a commonwealth that it can of its nature eat other commonwealths had entered christendom End quote. how finely said but alas the cannibal theory of a commonwealth existed long before chatham and frederick the great the instinct to exploit is one of the most venerable instincts of the human race whether in individual men or in nations of men and ancient hebrew and ancient greek and ancient roman had exhausted the passion of centuries in obedience to it before the language spoken either by chatham or by frederick was born 
Christian Spain, Christian France, and Christian England had not in this matter disowned the example of their Jewish and pagan forerunners. What we are infinitely grateful to Mr. Chesterton for, however, is that he has sufficient imagination to loathe cannibalism wherever he sees it. True, he seems to forgive certain forms of cannibalism on the ground that it is an exaggeration to describe the flesh of a rich man as the flesh of a human being. But he does rage with genius at the continual eating of men that went on in England, especially after the spoliation of the monasteries in the reign of Henry the Eighth gave full scope to the greed of the strong. He sees that the England which the Whig and Tory combined to defend as the perfection of the civilized world in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries was an England governed by men whose chief claim to govern was founded on the fact that they had seized their country and were holding it against their countrymen. Mr. Chesterton rudely shatters the mirror of perfection in which the possessing class have long seen themselves. He writes in a brilliant passage, quote, it could truly be said of the English gentleman, as of other gallant and gracious individual, that his honour stood rooted in dishonour. He was, indeed, somewhat in the position of such an aristocrat of romance, whose splendour has the dark spot of a secret and a sort of blackmail. His glory did not come from the crusades, but from the great pillage. The oligarchs were descended from usurers and thieves, that, for good or evil, was the paradox of England. The typical aristocrat was the typical upstart. But the secret was worse. Not only was such a family founded on stealing, but the family was stealing still. It is a grim truth that, all through the eighteenth century, all through the great Whig speeches about liberty, all through the great Tory speeches about patriotism, through the period of Wandiwash and Plassey, through the period of Trafalgar and Waterloo, one process was steadily going on in the central senate of the nation. Parliament was passing bill after bill for the enclosure by the great landlords of such of the common lands as had survived out of the great communal system of the Middle Ages. It is much more than a pun, it is the prime political irony of our history that the commons were destroying the commons. End quote. It would be folly to suggest, however, that, conscious though Mr. Chesterton is of the crimes of history, he has turned history into a mere series of floggings of criminals. He is forever laying down the whip and inviting the criminals to take their seats while he paints gorgeous portraits of them in all the colours of the rainbow. His praise of the mighty rhetoricians of the eighteenth century could in some passages scarcely be more unstinted if he were a Whig of the Whigs. He cannot but admire the rotund speech and swelling adventures of those days. If we go farther back, we find him portraying even the Puritans with a strange splendor of color. Quote, they were, above all things, anti-historic, like the futurists in Italy and there was this unconscious greatness about them, that their very sacrilege was public and solemn, like a sacrament, and they were ritualists even as iconoclasts. It was, properly considered, but a very secondary example of their strange and violent simplicity that one of them, before a mighty mob at Whitehall, cut off the anointed head of the sacramental man of the Middle Ages. For another, far away in the western shires, cut down the thorn of Glastonbury, 
from which had grown the whole story of Britain. End quote. This last passage is valuable, not only because it reveals Mr. Chesterton as a marvellous rhetorician doing the honours of prose to his enemies, but because it helps to explain the essentially tragic view he takes of English history. I exaggerated a moment ago when I said that to Mr. Chesterton English history is the story of the rise of a governing class. What it really is to him is the story of a thorn-bush cut down by a Puritan. He has hung all the candles of his faith on the sacred thorn, like the lights on a Christmas tree, and lo, it has been cut down and cast out of England with as little respect as though it were a verse from the Sermon on the Mount. It may be that Mr. Chesterton's sight is erratic, and that what he took to be the sacred thorn was really a upas tree, but in a sense that does not matter." he is entitled to his own fable if he tells it honestly and beautifully, and it is a tragic fable or romance of the downfall of liberty in England that one reads in his history. He himself contends in the last chapter of the book that the crisis in English history came, quote, with the fall of Richard II, following on his failures to use medieval despotism in the interests of medieval democracy, end quote. Mr. Chesterton's history would hardly be worth reading if he had made nothing more of it than what is suggested in that sentence. His book, apart from occasional sloughs of sophistry and fallacious argument, remains in the mind as a song of praise and dolor chanted by the imagination about an England that obeyed not God and despised the tree of life, but that may yet, he believes, hear once more the ancestral voices, and with her sons arrayed in trade unions and guilds, march riotously back into the Garden of Eden. End of section 5